Quest, episode 64, a third Burton Batman. Not full Schumacher, never go full Schumacher. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to Sequel Quest, the podcast where Adam, Jeff, and Jeremy invite you on a cinematic adventure to create prequels, sequels, and reboots to your favorite movie franchises. Joined by special guests along the way, Sequel Quest is go for launch. So let the adventure begin now. I, I heard the podcast got him. Oh man, listen to me. There ain't no podcast. But you shouldn't have turned off their Xanadu episode halfway oh. through. <laughs> you want your cut of the money or not? Now shut up. Shut up. Oh, don't kill me, man. Don't kill me. I'm not going to kill you. I want you to do me a favor. I want you to tell all your friends about my podcast. What is it? It's Sequel Quest. Welcome, citizens of Gotham. We have got a great episode of the show for you today. But first, allow me to introduce our rogues gallery of twisted psychopaths. First up, the man with a smile on his face that uses Brand X is Jeremy. Hello. (laughs) Currently hiding out at an abandoned zoo. You flush it. He flaunts it. Howdy, Jeff. Gross. That's me, I guess. <laughs> wow. And you want to get nuts? Let's get nuts. I'm Adam. Joining us tonight, after falling out a window and waking up with the love of form-fitting leather and whips, from our <laughs> diehard episode, Knizzle Returns, it's Michael Kennedy. Hey, guys. How are you? <laughs> oh, so excited. So excited. Now, a lot of people might be saying, hey, wait a minute. You already did a Batman episode. We're hoping you're saying that. We're hoping you listen to it. <laughs> I <laughs> listen to not, it. There surprise. you go. <laughs> but yes, going back to the early days of the show, we handled the Nolan trilogy and said, what would have happened if Christopher Nolan had made a fourth Batman film? Or in Jeremy's case, another trilogy of films. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, go back and listen to that one. It was very appreciated by our listening audience. Michael, I know you said that was actually the first one you listened to, right? Yeah, when you found I, I really liked it. I really enjoyed that one. But we kind of looked back at that. We said, you know what? There was also kind of a missed opportunity with letting Burton have a trilogy because Tim Burton made Batman relevant again. He made it something special when the movie hit in the summer of 1989. And he gave us... Batman returns three years later, and then suddenly he was out. He was gone. We got Joel Schumacher to muck up the works for two more films and two more Batmans. And it just felt like, what could Burton have done? I feel like people would have appreciated, regardless of the reception of Batman Returns, Burton gives you another film, it's going to be unique. But let's let's go back here, because Michael was very excited after our Die Hard episode. He said, if you ever want me back... I got a Batman film that I've been working on for 25 years. But what was it about the summer of 1989, seeing Batman, that made such an impact for you, Michael? Well, it's funny. Last week in my film class, 
two of my students wanted to do an interview of their professor and they asked to interview me and they're like what got you into filmmaking and i was honestly i said to them i was seven years old and i went to see batman 89 for the first time and i was like oh my god i gotta do that i gotta make movies like that was it it kind of sold me for it and you know as a kid i watched the super friends show and if you guys you know remember that show was campy kind of adam west style but i had like the toy batmobile when i growing up and when they went from the 66 style of batman with adam west and the campy bam pow type of thing and they made this serious movie i was like wow they made comic books feel real and feel Mm. you know superman's amazing and i always find superman like the christopher reeve first one a great movie but it's a character that he has powers i'm like batman is just a guy with an exorbitant amount of money that does the right thing and i kind of felt as a kid, he was like, oh, I could be Batman. I don't have any powers. But I could I could punch people if I wanted to. Yeah. But I do have a billion dollars, so. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's crazy, though, when you think about the group of people that came together to make that movie, because it feels so unlikely. Yeah. Uh, the guy who had the rights for a long time, his name was Michael Uslan, and he you'll see his name any Batman property. He is one of the executive producers, along with Benjamin Melnicker. So they were the guys who were shepherding a Batman film. And they thought they had a deal in 1980. And they thought there was going to be a movie. You know, come 1982, you were going to have Batman. And what happened was, like, the rights got sold. And over and over and over again, all these different... The studio folded. This studio bought them out. All this. And so it took forever to get it actually greenlit. And to where it was a stable film that was going to happen with Warner Brothers. And then, of all people to bring in, the director of Beetlejuice? The director of Pee-wee's Big Adventure? You know, know, it's just kind of an odd choice. And then he decides, oh, and I want to bring Beetlejuice in to play Batman. They were like... You want to have Mr. Mom and the guy from Dream Team to be Batman? I mean, before the internet existed, you know, people would write letters flipping out. Like, how can you make Michael Keaton be Batman? He's a comedian. He's not an action hero. Which I think was one of the things that worked so well for Michael Keaton is just that he plays that that parallel so well. Uh, But I was reading, and I don't know if it was the studio that really wanted Jack Nicholson, but... Which I remember when the movie came out, like my parents, like it w- it wasn't a Michael Keaton movie. It was a Jack Nicholson movie. Like he, he got was, top billing. Did oh, yeah. Know? Well, not only did he get top billing that he like he had salary demands. He demanded. I think he had script over over sight or whatever. And he demanded a cut of the profits. So he ended up making about 50 million dollars to make that movie. And Michael Keaton made five. Yeah, it was closer to 60, actually. Wow. Just due to his cut from the profits. And yeah, the the studio and Burton wanted Nicholson initially. So much so, he turned them down, and they went to Robin Williams, who accepted. And as soon as Nicholson heard that Williams had accepted, he doubled back and said, hey, I want in. And (laughs) that burned Warner Brothers and everyone on Williams until they apologized. And I think that's how he ended up doing all the the Disney-type movies for a while there because Warner Brothers kind of screwed him. Yeah, I, ha- I have heard, and when we get closer into our, our pitches, that that was one of the things, I guess, that initially they wanted Robin Williams to be the Riddler in the third movie. Too. Yeah, that was that's true. They yeah. did, and he turned them down because of how they did him dirty 
Oh. Yeah, he kind of turned wow. it back around on him. Yeah, he took too long to respond. Just didn't, you know, took his time. And like, all right, I guess well, we got the message. Did you I think see- he also bailed out when Keaton bailed out too, because he was on the fence oh. at one point. I remember reading a news article like in the in the Times, and they're like, oh, he he was gonna do it, but then Keaton backed out of, of the third movie, and then William said, I'm done too. Did you guys see the list of other actors they reached out to for the Joker role in the meantime? No, Tim oh. Curry. Willem Dafoe and David Bowie. Oh wow! Oh, for this version of for the, this the version Joker. of the Joker. Wow! I can't see Bowie, but I could definitely see the other two and their gigantic mouths. Yeah. Very yeah. little well, prosthetics about, necessary. I mean, Bowie at the time, you know, I mean, he did Labyrinth and stuff like that, so he wasn't just a, a musician. He, you know, could be seen as an actor. But he's as well. so suave. Like I feel like he would well, have had a hard time true. going, you know, out of character for himself that uh, would have been a little rough well but and that's that thing too that you kind of mentioned already or i guess michael you mentioned is that thing that like what people were used to was the adam west batman that was batman as far as people were concerned throughout the 80s and into this movie and so for him to be more of a caesar romero joker it's like well okay that makes a little more sense it was jack nicholson that transformed the role into you know what it was I read this somewhere. I don't know if this is fact. Don't quote me on this, but I read this maybe about 15 years ago that they wanted to get Jack Nicholson once they had already gotten Michael Keaton. Their eyebrows had the same kind of point to them. Arch, yeah. Yeah, and and Burton was kind of like, he wanted them to be almost polar opposites but have some sort of similarity, and their eyebrows, the way they point, or like an arch to them, was where they look kind of similar. And I, oh, I don't know if that's God. true, but I read it somewhere and I was like, wow, that's, if that was really what he thought about, that's some really, really deep cut research there. Oh, yeah. Well, and you look at and that's the thing that I love about that first movie is that element to it. That it was like these, because that's the thing that Christopher Nolan didn't really do is that that Joker and Christian Bale, there wasn't like, you are my opposite. He might've said that at one point, but that wasn't, they didn't build into that whereas this, I mean, the scenes that they have, even the scene in Vicki Vale's apartment where it's Bruce Wayne as Bruce versus the Joker. And yeah, just the back and forth about Dance with the Devil and the Pale Moonlight. Oh, so good. Hey, you're a nice girl. I like you a lot. But for right now, shut up. <laughs> Batman, come on now. I it's it's so a funny. Chivalrous. That, <laughs> back in the day when that movie came out on VHS, I remember you know, we only had basic cable in our house. And I used to just watch that movie backwards and forwards rewind it watch the whole thing rewind it again at the very very beginning of the movie i don't even know if you guys know this if you ever had the vhs copy there was a diet coke commercial yes and with alfred starring with alfred, alfred. <laughs> he's like calling a, a grocery store or whatever and he's saying like oh he's you know he's always in quite a rush and you see like the batmobile pull up and it's like drinking coke and it's got like a bat cape on the end of it i was like wow you put that on the vhs like how much did that cost (laughs) now i thought you were gonna mention my favorite part of the vhs was at the beginning because you know there was a huge merchandising blitz for this film i mean warner brothers that's where jack nicholson made all his money was the merchandising and even though the you know the film grossed 411 million dollars worldwide off a 35 million dollar budget so he also made a nice chunk of change there but yeah. the thing is 
uh, at the beginning, they had this cartoon with Daffy Duck and Bugs Bunny, and they were telling you how you could order a Warner Brothers merchandise catalog, and it had a big bat symbol on the front. Uh, I ordered that catalog. I used (laughs) Oh, my God, yeah. I had – because you could only mail away for the Batman, Bob the Goon, the Joker, (laughs) the Batcave, and the Batwing. And I had all five of those things. Oh, wow. I love those gold boxes. They were so beautiful. Oh, God, yeah. yeah, I was just looking at the picture online. and And I found out recently, if I had kept that stuff in the box, I could have sold that for thousands of dollars. I had the entire set. And I remember one year my mother and father were having like a barbecue at our house and they had family friends come over who had kids, mine and my sister's age. And their son was not really one one of my friends, but like one of those kids you had to hang out with because your parents were friends. (laughs) And he took my bat wing and he threw it as if he was trying to make it fly and it crashed and it broke the wings off. Oh. I was devastated. I'll never forget that day. I'm like, oh. It was like tainted after that when the wing broke. I'm like, I, it was dirty to me and I couldn't even touch it or look at it. I'll never forget that. <laughs> well, and that's the thing. I mean, yeah, the, the movie, outside of just being an awesome film, got the weight, you know, that Jack Nicholson brought to it. Okay, people are taking it seriously. And then it just, it was so huge. I mean, Ghostbusters 2 came out that year. A lot of movies came out. They just got overshadowed immediately. And I think that the other thing that people talk about a lot, I like I had a video cassette that was called Holy Bat Mania. But like people literally, like there were hats, there were jackets, like even new kids on the block, they were wearing Batman gear. I mean, people had everything you could imagine. I mean, I, I had my share of Batman shirts and just that logo was everywhere. You couldn't everywhere. get away from it. It was everywhere. Yeah. Absolutely. I remember going to the theater on the opening day and like I'd never seen so many Batman shirts in my life. And I was like... Mm wow, there are people like me that like Batman. And I had this, it was the gray suit, blue cape Batman. He's just kind of standing in a silhouette. And uh, I remember wearing that shirt. And maybe about four years ago, they released a, a new version of it at Hot Topic. And I was like, oh, really? I need to buy the adult version of it. And I bought it. I have it still. I'm like, oh my God, it's the exact same version just now as an adult. I have that same shirt, which was pretty cool. And even the posters, the posters for that movie and for Returns were so unique because all you needed was just that bat symbol. Yeah. And everybody knew what you were talking about. It wasn't like you needed to show their faces. You just needed to see that symbol. And everyone's like, Batman is coming because no one had ever thought about like, oh, my, how are we going to ever see this thing in real life? You know? Uh, now, Jeremy, I'm curious because I know you were pretty young when that first movie came out. I mean, it, are the Nolan films your Batman films or did you catch up with this whole series years ago? Did you grow up with it? Well, this was my Batman going into high school. That was kind of when I got into the Batman movies. And then I went to Africa for two years, came back, and all of a sudden there was Nolan's Batman. That's kind of where everything took off. And that's where I deep dove into it. So I had this recognition of the Keatons and the Val Kilmer and the Clooney. Like, it was the latter two that I knew really well of the four. And yeah, they didn't feel right to me. Like, yeah, I was going to say, that's Batman. unfortunate. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, oh man, going back through these two this week, ah, we really missed out on not having a third Burton. Oh, I agree. 
Yeah, and, and the the story behind that's interesting because you know, like Michael said, I was seven when I saw the first film in '89. But when Batman Returns came out, I was ten, so I was totally prepared for the hype, for the onslaught of merchandise that was coming. I had a big movie poster by Rube, the Bat, the Cat, and the Penguin. You know, <laughs> I bought the candy dispensers. I have literally right next to me, right here, I have my collector's edition movie magazine. I got the trading cards. I got my yeah. my action figures. I got the McDonald's toys you know like i just i was ready for it i was so excited so what was interesting though was there was this backlash that happened from the film and i will just say that you know they they talk about oh well it had you know more sexual innuendo it had more violence batman's killing people but that stuff really went over my head as a kid yeah me too i felt the same way i'm like it's a batman movie you know i think the biggest problem that they had with it was the fact that the penguin was so hideous looking. Right. And I think there was something an issue with like either Toys R Us or McDonald's was like, how we can't, we can't put this in a happy meal. Right. You know, like we, well, <laughs> that was McDonald's, the problem. Yeah. McDonald's dropped them. They did. They, yeah, they didn't, they didn't do after the huge big thing. Cause it's funny. Like you guys say that my experience was the exact opposite. Not that I didn't, I didn't, wasn't into it, but my entire family to this day still remembers, actually they only remember one thing about Batman Returns, and that was when Penguin bites the guy's nose. And that's right. it. Like, and that, yeah. The sad thing is like a lot of people that I talk to say that exact same thing. That's I've somehow that how they've associated like that. Like, yeah, well, that the, to me as a kid was horrifying. And that part did go over the top for me. Like, so that, yeah, that, that was scary. And like Michael was saying, the fact that the penguin was too grotesque. Like I remember being excited. Oh, the Batman returns figures are going to come out. So I got the transforming Bruce Wayne figure. I got the Catwoman figure, but then the penguin was just the superpowers penguin who looked like he looked in the comics, just a oh, little yeah. fat man with a big yeah. nose, but he was painted black and red instead of blue and yellow and purple like he had been originally and it was one of the things i was like what is this like and i wanted (laughs) a danny devito penguin so i had to buy one of those just static pvc figurines you know and just and he held a little umbrella and i was like okay i guess i have to just settle for this but i think kids are okay with monsters it was like a fairy tale film anyway so like he's a monster we're not scared by him he's just the bad guy See, uh, if you ask me, like, I don't think that movie was geared towards children. I don't think that was a was children's not. movie. Neither was the, the first. Well, and that's true, but uh, yes that's no. not the first the way one had cussing. It's the, the same thing. Had sexual I think it's it the same thing. Stuff. I think it's the same thing where DC is going right now, where like DC, well, they can't quite make up their mind if you ask me between whether <laughs> they want to be adult or not. But it's that same thing. Like my brother-in-law took his four-year-old kids to go and see Justice League. And I was kind of oh, wow. like, Ugh. but that's that sad thing is that this is superheroes. This is supposed right. to be family friendly. And especially because Marvel is doing family friendly. So like, not that I necessarily agree as a film fan, but I get what Warner Brothers was saying. You know, like this is not what we signed up for. And there's more money to be made in family friendly. And they were right, because Batman Forever did make more money than Batman Returns. Yeah, well, let's let's talk about this, because the, the way that Batman Returns became what it was is pretty interesting, because the original screenplay for Batman 2, as it was called, was written by Sam Hamm, who wrote yeah. the original. And they did say, OK, we want the Penguin. We want Catwoman. 
But in this plot, it was the Penguin hiring Catwoman to steal a bunch of raven statues from wealthy Gothamites that combined Yawn. to form a map that pointed to a structure <laughs> buried under Wayne Manor. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I'm sure you're getting to this, Adam, but Burton pretty much said his first movie was boring. And granted, it's not exactly Burton-esque. It's very safe. It's studio safe. I'll put he it that way. He got his balloons in there. That was the Burton right. element. And uh-huh. so Actually, with, with 89, they rewrote that whole last scene during the shooting of it because uh-huh. him and Jack Nicholson and Keaton didn't like the way the ending of the first one was supposed to go to nice. a carnival where he would he would find Dick Grayson and Dick Grayson would get killed and like Batman's on a horse or something like that. There's like yeah. on the on the Blu-ray there's like a like still images of like the um, the storyboards Story, of it, yeah. and they hated it. They threw that whole thing away, and they rewrote it at the end of the uh-huh. during shooting. Well, and they did have Kiefer Sutherland as Robin for that. Luckily, I didn't know it that was part. yeah, it was cut out. So anyway, when Warner Brothers approached Burton for a sequel, they essentially said, "You know what? Don't make a Batman. Make a Tim Burton movie that happens to have Batman in it." Well, what he did was he hired a new screenwriting partner to come in. It was a guy named Daniel Waters. And he had like all the political stuff about the penguin running for mayor because that was actually the plot of an old Adam West Batman episode, if you go back. And then, you know, Burton added, but he's a bird man. He's a sewer dwelling circus freak, you know. But Daniel Waters is the guy who wrote the movie Heathers with Winona Ryder and Christian Uh Slater. And that is about a, a black comedy about teen suicide. So what yeah. do you expect when you get that guy on board to write a, a superhero film for you? You know, he's not in it for uh, for the, the Biff Bam Pow, you know? Oh, yeah. I was just going to say one of the interesting things uh, script wise that I blame Batman Returns for is that and I don't I think it was because it specifically fit the specific story because technically the bad guy in Batman Returns is Christopher Walken. 100%. Everybody else are basically pawns that he's using and that turn right. against him, and et cetera, et cetera. But what I think this did is it created this, what I think is a horrible trope, is that every superhero movie now, especially Batman superhero movies, needs two villains for oh. some reason. And I don't know why, but they've, they've done it ever since. Yeah, well, yeah that, it's, it's unfortunate. And like, like the main complaint that Michael Keaton had was, this isn't a Batman movie. I'm not in this movie. Right. It is about the Penguin. It's about Catwoman yeah. stories. And I literally just come in and beat some people up. And his uh-huh. one storyline is his like brief romance, you know, with Selena Kyle. Oh, another person just as damaged as me who puts on a costume. Right. Okay. But it's really sad to see how little he's in the movie, except just to be, very I'm little. Batman. <laughs> but the, the other characters that they were going to have in it originally, like I said, we missed Robin in the first one. In the second one, he was written to be a 12-year-old homeless kid who knew how to fight like a ninja. And uh-huh. he sees Batman with his mask off, and that's how he becomes his ward, just to keep the secret safe. Billy D. Williams was going to come back as Harvey Dent. And at the very end, that electric kiss that Catwoman gives to Christopher Walken was going to happen to Harvey Dent. And that's where he was going to have his face ride in half and his mind. Yeah, that was what was going to set it off for the third movie. But when they made Batman Returns, so again, they were just like, well, we should try to do Robin again. Everybody's expecting it. So Waters and Burton got together. The the closest thing they could figure out was, okay, well, Robin's going to be an adult mechanic 
with a faded R on his jumpsuit. They had an interaction with Batman. And there's a scene in the film where after, you know, the Penguin takes control of Batmobile and he has to split it into the Bat Missile, he's working on it in the Batcave. Bruce Wayne is fixing it. And I think that's where the Robin mechanic was going to come in, mm. fix the Batmobile for him. But who was going to play him? I'm sure you guys have heard this. Oh, I heard this. Marlon Wayans. Wayans. Marlon Wayans, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. He still gets residual checks for it. He <laughs> got paid for two movies because he had a two-picture deal. Right. But well, they just yeah, said there's they, no room they, for it. When they actually cast Chris O'Donnell, he was still the first choice, wasn't he? That's what I heard for. Oh was. yeah. And then I mean, and then sadly they did say no. The studio literally said, from what I heard, no, we want a white Robin. Oh. Yeah, I mean that was Schumacher coming in and saying, well, this is the direction I'm going. Yeah, which right. is unfortunate. But the other part too, like I said, is there was a Robin action figure. It's like a flat top, if you ever noticed yeah. it. Yeah, look, he looks like he totally could have been Marlon Wayans, you know, (laughs) painted it differently. And so it's one of those things that because it was cut at the last minute, he said he was ready to go like they were going to film his scene and just never did. It wasn't like, oh, we have an idea. It's no, no, you're cast and we're getting ready. Oh, wait, no, we're not. So Robin just, yeah, we had to wait till Batman forever. And uh, whether you liked it or not. (laughs) One of the biggest gripes that people have about the Burton Batman movies is that Batman kills. I look at it for me, you know, I'm a hardcore comic book fan. I've been reading comic my whole life, except for like that time in the late nineties when girls become a factor and you're like, I got to hide the comics for a few years and hang out with girls. Instead. I look at the Burton movies as kind of like an Elseworlds story, you know, because in Batman 89, Jack Napier kills Bruce's parents. You know, there's a lot of things that, are out of the continuity of the comics, but they work for the story. And I was like, you know what? Suspend your disbelief. Find this Batman kills. This world is weird. It's it's twisted version of what we're familiar with. But it, I look at it as an Elseworlds story, in my opinion. So I yeah, never but got I, really I argue Plus, if Burton hadn't done what he did, I just think it would have been boring to do the yeah. same kind of movie again. He right. gave it a unique spin that makes you still talk about it. It's yeah. an entertaining film on its own, whether or not it fits well, as well in the continuity. Yeah, and I know I, I like I had a film professor that would argue that that is the cinematically that Batman Returns is the best Batman film ever released. Just the character development. You're right, not character development of Batman. But the character <laughs> development of Selena Kyle, the oh, yeah. the the arc that that you see, I mean, where you actually at one point have sympathy for the Penguin, like that's a huge big deal. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, just all of that going through. And Michelle then, Pfeiffer and, is great. I oh, mean, she's, she's spectacular. She's amazing. Yeah. Gosh. And she, I mean, like, and especially because I get the feeling going in that Michelle Pfeiffer wasn't necessarily like a sex icon, but after this movie and to this day, she is still like. That suit, anybody shows up in that suit and you're in trouble. (laughs) Well, okay, so she was originally tapped to take over for Vicki Vale after their first person dropped out. It was fan of the show Sean Young, who was originally cast as Vicki Vale. Yeah, I knew that. But that's when she fell off her horse and broke her collarbone. So Tim Burton wanted Michelle Pfeiffer. Michael Keaton objected because he was dating Pfeiffer at the time. Uh-huh. So by the time the second movie rolled around, it looks like uh, things were done and over with and moved on uh-huh. for the third or potential third movie. Burton kept the rights to a Catwoman spinoff. 
Oh yeah, yeah I saw that. And well, then she was on board. Yeah, I mean, well, Michelle Pfeiffer was all about it. Yeah. Right, and that's ultimately that same script is what ultimately became the Halle Berry movie, isn't well, it? Well, after like yeah. literally yeah. thirteen screenwriters right. <laughs> wrote, rewrote it over and over and over again for a decade, and then they're like, "Okay, uh, we're gonna put this out just because we have to." I don't know why they thought that was a good idea. Terrible <laughs> premise. Terrible go. premise. Oh, terrible. Movie. But he, this is the thing too. So, so Keaton. Uh, you know, he was on board for the third movie, but uh, then when he met with Schumacher about it and found out, oh, there's no intention of doing a more with the Batman character. Like he wanted a prequel film, basically Batman Begins right. for himself. Right. And so these, like, oh, you're not doing that. Fine. You know, I'm out. And then the studio met with Tim Burton. He actually uh, in an interview, uh, Shadows of the Bat documentary, I think it's on the Blu-ray. You can watch it. But he talks about how he went to a meeting with them. And he said, oh, look, you know, we could do this. We could do that. And they go, like, eh, Tim, don't you want to do a smaller movie? Just something that's more you. <laughs> He's like, you know, about a half hour of the meeting. I go, oh, you don't want me to make another one, do you? They go, oh, no, 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 no. I said, no, no, I know you. So we just stopped right there. That's the quote from uh, Burton. So I, I remember seeing that in that documentary. I remember that. Yeah. yeah so. They literally just kind of gave him the nudge and he said, fine, but I'm out. But like we mentioned to Batman Forever, much bigger success financially. I think they got the wrong message about that. Mm, <laughs> I think people yeah. were just excited about a third movie. I don't think it had anything to do with the lighter tone or anything. I think it was just, oh, uh, another Batman. I think, I, yeah, I don't know that the box office, well, that part certainly helped. The names that they threw in there, because it was, my goodness, star-studded and I mean, they all were, but this one especially. But I do think I don't. I think the family-friendly nature, because I feel like if if Burton would have made another one, the same or darker than Batman Returns, like that's when their people are going to start leaving because yeah. they want to bring their kids, and if their kids are having nightmares, they're they might fool me once, maybe fool me twice. It just got out of control, don't you oh, guys think? Like oh, with totally. the casting, uh, with did. the merchandising, with oh, everything. Well, the thing um, that I, that I love so much, and it's well, we talked about this in our last Batman podcast. That uh, my my one complaint about Christopher Nolan's movies is, or one of them, is that he cast the wrong Batman. But besides that, <laughs> is the fact that his goal was let's make Batman as real as possible to make it seem like he's in the real world. And that's not how Batman has been written. Classically, DC is a different universe. Yes. That's why they go to Gotham City instead of Detroit. That's why it's Metropolis instead of New York. That's why it's, you know, it's a whole different thing. And that's the thing that's so fascinating about Burton is that Burton tries to do that. Let's create what would this world look like? And so he's got the extreme gothic, almost cartoony, but still gritty and like, no, this is a real place. It's just not our place. And then Schumacher took it and he kind of took the reins, but then there were neon lights everywhere. And then Dialed it was it like to 11 black lights. Did. Yeah. But it, it, it felt like Face he was paint. still trying to do all three. Where he's like, let's make this gothic, family-friendly, and real-world. How do we do that? <laughs> you can't. Arnold Schwarzenegger. Answer, you can't. Oh. I also think I mean, a lot of the reason why Batman Forever was so successful is they were riding the wave of Jim Carrey, who just came yeah. off The Mask, and Ace Ventura, and they're like, we got Jim Carrey, oh my goodness, this is, this is going to make us millions, you know? And that was what it was. Did you guys yeah. ever hear how Schumacher cast George Clooney as Batman? 
Oh, let's hear that. Oh, he, he, I, I watched it in an interview. He was sitting on an airplane and he was going through the newspaper. And at the time, uh, From Dust Till Dawn came out. Oh. And he had a pen in his hand and he drew ears on George Clooney. And he said, ah. huh, he could look like that, man. <laughs> that's, that's how it happened. Wow. True story. I, re- I saw it online. Oh, I was like, oh my fun. God, he's really said that for real. Wow. Well, and you know what's funny? I like I do. I was just reading an old issue of Disney Adventures magazine, yeah, and like in their do. movie announcement <laughs> section, yeah, like I do, and uh, they were uh, doing the announcement that George Clooney is going to be playing Batman, and they were making a big deal about it. It's like the star of ER is leaving the hospital and going to the Batcave, and I forgot that at that time. I mean, technically. Unless you want to go back to the 80s when he was in Return of the Killer Tomatoes. I mean, George Clooney was a TV actor and Batman and Robin is what pushed him, aside from, like you said, from Dust Till Dawn, kind of into the real big budget, you know, limelight, which is pretty crazy. And when Uh, I've heard when I've heard uh, uh, Clooney interviewed about that, he'll always say he's like, I'm not going to defend whether it was a good movie or not, but like. I'll make no bones about it. It made me a star. Like that's what put me on the map. And it did like, that's what got him out there. Yeah. And he's been very public about apologizing and laughing about it. So he's a cool (laughs) dude. And I don't blame him for the movie at all. It's not his fault. Yeah. Lines, you know, Uh, he didn't help, but (laughs) (laughs) yeah. And it was one of those things. I even remember, you know, cause then we got Batman and Robin, we got George Clooney, we got Schwarzenegger, we got Uma Thurman. It's just like, Oh dear. But I just I remember at one point there was also a rumor if there was a fifth Batman film that Howard Stern was going to play the Scarecrow. Did anybody ever read that besides me? That was in like a lot of movie magazines and comic magazines I was reading at the time. And I was like, what? But he had just made like Scarecrow. I had heard the fifth movie would have been Scarecrow, but I don't remember Uh, it being. But I feel like that's something Howard Stern would say, though. (laughs) True or not. That's true. Yeah, but I mean, I guess like we have, we have to look now as we're getting ready for the pitches. Let's look at what happened to Burton then after he left. So again, he's still making movies. His next one is a smaller film. It's Ed Wood in 1994. Which, wasn't he producing Batman Forever? Well, was that was that was just a technicality. Oh, he was okay, not cause... involved at all in the production or pre-production right. or anything. Yeah, because yeah, I read something and he said, yeah, I was more focused on Ed Wood at the time. So I didn't. And I guess he sat. He, he, I read that he, he sat in on a script read and he's just like, what are you guys doing? <laughs> and that was the end. But so so meanwhile, so we're, we're getting Batman forever. We're getting Batman and Robin. So we get Ed Wood. Burton comes back again with Mars Attacks in 96. Oh. Right. Which is, I enjoyed it for the you time. I owned it off Blu-ray. But As a kid, I enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah. I enjoyed that. Uh, it's just—it's one of those movies that's so fun because there's so many stars in it, you know. And you're just like, oh, who's that guy? Who's that guy? You know. And dual role for Jack Nicholson, teaming back up with him, you know. But then in 1998 is where Burton went into pre-production on the infamous failed Nicolas Cage film Superman Lives. Yeah. And this is not a Superman podcast, but there's a great documentary called. The death of Superman lives. What happened? <laughs> and I, I own it. I, I bought it. You can stream it. And the thing is, what happened was that film ultimately did not get greenlit because Batman and Robin was such a disaster. Like they were working uh, on it. They were doing so much pre-production work, you know, and costuming. There's the infamous also picture of 
uh, Nicolas Cage in a test picture as Superman, and everybody's always, oh, it's terrible. It would have been horrible. It actually suit. probably would have been interesting. Yeah, it was kind of a blue, shiny costume. But that's when you look at that then. I mean, Burton was ready to do cosmic. He had kind of done the space thing with Mars Attacks. Now he's getting into an alien living among us. And there was an alien brainiac coming down and all these things. Superman was going to die. He's going to fight Doomsday, so on and so forth. So he was ready to go that big budget action powerhouse film different from Batman. And so I feel like if Batman and Robin and Batman Forever hadn't happened, but maybe Burton did his Batman 3, we could have gotten... You know, he could have had the license, I guess, to make a Superman film, whether or not it still would have started Nicolas Cage and all that. I think it would have been interesting to have a Superman concurrently existing with Batman on the silver screen. We just never got that chance. That would have been cool. I mean, I agree. I think you're 100 percent right on that. It was the major problem was Batman and Robin killed the superhero genre until the Spider-Man franchise came out, basically. Mm-hmm. But here we are. So this is how I am thinking of our pitches as we get into this is we are now in an alternate 1995, the summer of 95. And there's a third Burton Batman film coming out. We've been listening to the hype for two to three years and we're all ready to go on this. So if we get into casting, like we get into casting, but if you guys want to pitch your Batman or whoever's playing your characters as you do your pitch as well, that could help us imagine the movie poster as it's coming out, help your uh, your story. But wait, hold on. Not all of us are going to do this alternate 1995. <laughs> oh, no, no. Oh, OK. Well, I'm curious to know. So, so this is a, a, a possibility of a Burton film now is what yeah. you're saying. OK, oh, okay. I, I had not imagined that. So that will be interesting to hear. OK, but Michael, I think it's time to unleash right. the beast. Okay, well, buckle up, guys. Um, (laughs) So the title of the movie that I liked was Batman Asylum, and I'll dive right in. Batman Asylum is is a film noir love story set in late November, early December. I chose this time of year because it stems back to when Selina and Bruce Wayne meet for the first time around the holidays. So we pick up three years after the events of Batman Returns. Batman is now well-established law and order in Gotham City, and he finds himself searching for answers. He's been trying to figure out where Selina Kyle has gone for the last three years. She has vanished completely. Batman is sitting in front of the Bat-computer. Alfred observes that he's been searching for Selina Kyle. There are images of her in Dubai and Rome and Paris and Berlin and Moscow, Shanghai, and Tokyo, and he's been tr- he's been tracking her all over the world, but he can never seem to catch her. And all of a sudden, he gets an alert that there's possibility that she's returned to Gotham City. Bruce then suits up in a newly designed bat suit with hints of gray and a black chest plate. Batman leaves the bat cave and meets with Commissioner Gordon on the top of Gotham Police Precinct. Gordon, now looking older, more weathered, uh, he talks to him about Catwoman, and he also mentions that he seems that there is another new player in town that could be a hero could be a villain but also seems to have an affinity for bats like him gordon starts talking about the falcone family and their criminal organization which is starting to make noise again in gotham city he states that the new da has extra police officers with him around the clock he states that he doesn't want to have happened to harvey dent happen to this new da batman agrees that what happened to harvey was a tragedy gordon also mentions one more thing there's a new player in gotham He left this behind, and he hands Batman an envelope. 
my people can't seem to make heads or tails of it. And then Gordon also tells Batman, do me a favor. My daughter is back from study abroad. Can you keep an eye on her so she doesn't get herself in trouble? Batman turns over the envelope and it's a giant green question mark on it. Batman takes off and disappears into the night. Batman has been investigating the Falcone crime family. One key secret that he's uncovered was that Selina Kyle, a.k.a. Catwoman, is the illegitimate daughter of Carmine Falcone. He feels that she's been hunting him to kill him because she is the rightful heir to the Falcone crime family. We find Batman next at Ace Chemicals reviewing the crime scene. He pays close attention to all the details. He takes out the envelope and places it on the computer desk. The riddle consists of a mirror, two roses a pearl, and two drops of blood. Batman knows the answer to this riddle immediately. He asks himself, does this criminal know that Bruce Wayne and Batman are the same person? Batman looks visually shaken up. He stumbles backwards and falls over a railing. He grabs onto the railing. This particular railing is a very familiar one to Batman. This is the railing that Jack Napier fell over before he fell into the vat of acid that turned him into the Joker. Batman seems very dazed and disoriented when all of a sudden a hand reaches over the side and grabs him. Batman looks up and it's a shadowy figure. This civilian hero helps pull him over the railing. Batman plants his feet and tries to steady himself as he looks up. The faceless hero is gone. Could it have been Catwoman or this new heroine that's floating around the city? If so, did she leave him the riddle or is it someone else? Batman returns to the Batcave to analyze the package. There are no fingerprints. There's no skin samples. There's nothing on this package except for those two drops of blood. He wants to know where the blood came from. He analyzes the blood, and it's some sort of pig's blood. All of a sudden, Batman collapses on the ground, and Alfred rushes to his side. We flash back to 1990. Bruce is sitting in the Batcave, staring at pictures of the Joker. Vicki Vale enters to try to encourage him to come to dinner. An alert comes across the bat computer that there's an incident down at Ace Chemicals. He tells Vicky he has to go. Upon the arrival, he finds Carmine Falcone and his men looting through similar files that Jack Napier and his men did before he became the Joker. High above them, he's observing the actions. He finds Harvey Dent arrive with a, with a fleet of police officers. The mobsters open fire. Batman swoops down and tries to protect Harvey Dent. He ricochets a bullet off of his armor. It hits an acid barrel. It springs a leak, blasting Harvey's left side of his body. Batman turns in horror as he sees Harvey on the ground, screaming in pain. Falcone and his men escape. Batman alerts the police officers to get help, and Batman summons the Batmobile to take Harvey to Gotham General. Bruce is now back in the Batcave. Vicky is sitting beside him. He's telling her what happened and how he blames himself, and he starts airing all of his dirty secrets, all the things that he's done in order to become Batman. I put this in because in Batman Returns, uh, Michelle Pfeiffer, Celia Kyle, asks him, you know, what happened to your last girlfriend? And he says, I told her too much. And I feel like he's having these nightmares of telling her all these things that he did to scare Vicki Vale away. She's horrified by some of the things he says, and she leaves the Batcave. Bruce Wayne lays on the ground, staring at the bats, reliving flashes of Jack Napier and the Joker's face. He hears the Joker's voice calling him, tormenting him. I wanted to put Jack Nicholson back in this movie in Bruce Wayne's head because we've seen Bruce's parents die a million times. but We haven't seen any of the other things that have happened to him that torment him. And I felt that that was important to have that element in there. Like the Joker is still lingering in his mind. That night, Batman is out on patrol and searching for this Riddler character. He grapples to a gargoyle on a rooftop and he misses and he begins to fall. The shadowy figure comes swooping in and catches him. 
the shadowy figure is revealed to be none other than Catwoman. But she's not alone. Standing beside her is a young lady in a bat suit. Catwoman, now in a much less homemade and more of a tactical cat suit, is observing Batman. The young girl with deep red hair, the Batgirl, is looking out over the city. Catwoman turns to him and says, you don't seem yourself. Batman says to her, I've been looking for you. Catwoman tells him that she knows. Batgirl says to Catwoman, Cat, we should go. Batman asks her, who are you supposed to be? And Batgirl goes, I'm Batgirl. And Batman just replies, cute, and leaves it at that. Batman gets to his feet, and the two women jump off the side of the building. Batman tries to chase them, but he's still very disoriented. Just then, an explosion happens across town. Batman presses a button on his utility belt that summons the Batmobile, and he races over to the explosion. A building is on fire. Batman jumps out of the Batmobile and races inside the building. He presses a button on his utility belt that drops down infrared goggles from his cowl. He begins to scan the building to look for survivors. He doesn't see anybody except he sees the silhouette of a small person on the floor above him. He races over what he thinks is a person. It's revealed to only be a skeleton. And the skeleton has a box under its arm. Batman grabs the box and jumps out a nearby window as the building explodes. Batman stands outside the Batmobile later as Gordon approaches. And there's a huge question mark burned into the side of the building. Batman and Gordon examine the box. Batman opens it to reveal another riddle. There is a poster of the Mark of Zorro, a news clipping of the Grey Ghost, and a comic book from the 1950s of The Shadow. Commissioner Gordon looks confused, but Batman knows exactly what the message that the Riddler is trying to send to him. Batman drives to the movie theater that he and his parents went to the night of their death. It's been closed down now, boarded up for years. Batman enters the building and switches on the infrared goggles. There is a man standing on the floor below him, swinging a cane. Batman suddenly crashes through the floor. Batman stands before his tormentor. He is a man with medium build wearing all green and question marks. Batman sees flashes of the Joker before his eyes. He hears the Joker's laugh. The Riddler says to him something that knocks him backwards. You ever dance with the devil by the pale moonlight? Batman quickly throws a batarang at the foe. He deflects it with his cane. He tells Batman that he's been studying him for years. He knows everything about him. He remembers that day in Vicki Vale's apartment when the Joker and the gang arrived to surprise Vicki Vale. And Bruce Wayne is there. And in that moment, not only did they meet Bruce Wayne, but they met Batman. He knew by the way that he flipped out to the Joker that this was Batman. He then needed time to prove it. He tells him before he's done with the anarchy he plans to ensue on Gotham, everyone will know that Batman and Bruce Wayne are the same. That's the greatest riddle of them all. The Riddler throws a vial on the ground that creates a weird smoke. Batman begins to cough and starts to hallucinate. He is seeing visions of the Joker approaching him, pointing a gun at him, laughing and screaming. Batman throws himself through a nearby window and crashes on top of a parked car. He quickly climbs off of the car, calls to the Batmobile, climbs into the car and whispers, Home. The Batmobile drives back to the Batcave. In the Batcave, Batman fights to get his suit off. He presses his intercom and calls for Alfred. Call Leslie. Call Lucius. Now, Alfred. Batman collapses on the ground beside the Batmobile. Next, we flash back to 1990. Bruce and Vicki Vale are walking on the grounds of Wayne Manor. Bruce is telling her more of the horrible disfigurement of Harvey Dent, the smell of his burning skin, the look in his eyes, the agony. Bruce blames himself. Vicki tells him 
he if he didn't deflect the bullet, Harvey would have been dead. Bruce asks her, which is worse, death or this horrible disfigurement? Later that night, Batman visits Harvey at Gotham General. He perches himself outside the hospital window. Harvey's left side of his body is completely bandaged. Harvey's fiance, Grace, which is the name of her in the Batman the Animated Series, sits by his bedside weeping. Commissioner Gordon stands in the doorway with his head down. Harvey turns his head slowly toward the window and Batman is gone. Batman stands on the rooftop of the hospital. Gordon comes to the roof for fresh air. The two have a conversation and Gordon tries to convince Batman it wasn't his fault. Batman doesn't agree and leaves. Batman goes to the Falcone mansion. He gets past the gate guards and the dogs. He breaks into Carmine Falcone's study looking for evidence. There's a turn on the doorknob. Batman disappears as Carmine Falcone and his son Alberto enter the room. Batman listens to their conversation about Dent just as they hear a noise. Batman gets hit in the side of the head with a baseball bat. My idea for Carmine Falcone is Al Pacino and his son Alberto. I was thinking of Leonardo DiCaprio, just to put that in your mind. We find Batman, or find Bruce again, waking up back in his bed at Wayne Manor. They reveal that he's been poisoned now for the second time. Lucius tells him that he analyzed the, the two riddles and the chemical residue on the bat suit from whatever the Riddler threw at him, and the chemical compounds create some sort of fear-inducing toxin. Bruce refuses and gets out of bed to go back on the town. Alfred says, it's 2 p.m. You've been unconscious for 14 hours. Bruce leaves the mansion and takes a car into Gotham City. He sees a young lady with short black hair sitting in a coffee shop. He realizes it's Barbara Gordon. I chose short black hair as a callback to Batman 66 because Yvonne Craig had black hair and wore a red-haired wig. He goes in and asks if he can join her. Uh, They have a conversation. She tells him all about her study abroad in Paris, in Rome, in Berlin, in Moscow. Bruce looks very intrigued by what she's telling him. He asked her if she's made any friends while she was studying abroad. She mentioned that she and her professor became very close. Bruce excuses himself and wishes her well. Bruce now knows that Batgirl is Barbara Gordon, and she's been getting mentored by Selina Kyle. Bruce approaches his car, and there's a note on it. It's from Selina telling Bruce to stay out of her affairs. She makes note that this is a family ordeal. He looks back at the coffee shop, and Barbara is gone. That night, Batman watches over the Carmine Falcone penthouse in midtown Gotham City. From a distance, he can see the Catwoman and Batgirl approach the penthouse and break in. A fight breaks out, and the women dismantle all the guards with great precision. Batman races to the penthouse, knowing the women are there to kill Falcone. He busts in as Catwoman has a whip around Carmine's neck. Batman tries to convince her to to not kill him. He tells her that he knows he's her biological father. She argues with Batman, telling him that he wouldn't understand because he didn't grow up in an orphanage with nothing but the memories of her mother being murdered in front of her by Carmine's men because she was going to reveal that Selina was the rightful heir to the Falcone family. Just then, Alberto comes into the room. Batgirl kicks him across the face and knocks him to the ground. Catwoman pulls Carmine close and tells him that this isn't over. She's coming back for him. With that, she quickly snaps the whip and it leaves a slice mark on Carmine's face. The women flee out the window and Batman chases after them. They meet on a rooftop and Batman engages in a fight with Catwoman and Batgirl. During the fight, the bat signal shines over Gotham. Catwoman says, another time then. Batgirl goes, no, wait, look. All of a sudden, a green light starts to trace the sky in the shape of a question mark with the bat symbol as the dot. 
Selena looks at Batman and says, does he know? Batman nods and says, I have to stop him before everyone else finds out. Batgirl offers their help. Batman looks away in disagreement and leaps off the building. Batgirl tries to convince Selena that they should help him. She emphasizes that he doesn't seem himself. Batgirl says he looks broken. Catwoman tells her that she doesn't know the half of it. She agrees that they should help Batman, but he's not going to like it. They follow him by running from rooftop to rooftop as he's driving in the Batmobile. He appears to be driving erratically. He suddenly crashes the Batmobile. Batgirl and Catwoman dive off the rooftop to the Batmobile. Batman opens the roof and tells him to get in. He tells the Batmobile, Watchtower, now. Batman drives the Batmobile to the old Gotham City Bank, which has a clock tower on the top and hasn't been used in years. The Batmobile enters through a hidden doorway and lands on a platform that rises from the sub-basement to the clock tower on the top of the building. The Batmobile roof opens. Batman climbs out and points to a an emergency medical box and yells to Catwoman, Adrenaline! EpiPen! He rips off his cowl, revealing that he's Bruce Wayne in front of Batgirl. He points at his neck. Catwoman jams the EpiPen into his neck and Batman collapses. We flash back to 1990. Batman stands outside of the hospital window. The glass is broken and the curtain is blowing in the wind. The hospital bed is empty. Grace is screaming at Batman that it's his fault. Gordon tries to calm her down. Grace throws a glass vase at Batman. Then we wake up. We're back in present day. Catwoman throws water in Bruce's face. Batgirl is looking at all the technology in the watchtower. Catwoman, now unmasked, tries to help him to stand up. Bruce tells Batgirl that you don't need to hide your identity. He knows who she is. He's offering them the watchtower as a base of operations so that he can at least protect them a little bit and help them. Batgirl and Catwoman and Batman stand over the back computer at the watchtower. Batman starts to go through the arrest records of all of the Joker's men. And he looks for someone with a similar M.O. to the Riddler. One name pops up, Edward Nigma, who was released on a technicality. No evidence is tr- can truly link him to the Joker's gang, except that he was arrested as part of the gang. Another explosion happens and shakes the watchtower. Batman looks outside. The GCPD is on fire. Batman heads to the roof, and Catwoman and Batgirl follow. They dive from rooftops, and they start gliding towards the GCPD. Upon arrival, the Riddler is holding Jim Gordon hostage on the rooftop at gunpoint. Batgirl readies a batarang. Catwoman pulls out her whip. Batman holds them back and suggests that they go help people flee the building. Batman knows he's stronger than the Riddler. He just doesn't know if he's smarter than him. The Riddler reminds Batman that he knows everything about him. He asks how he's feeling and he reveals that he has a doctor friend who can help him with his fears and that the asylum is waiting for him. Someone is as insane as Batman belongs in the asylum. Batman sees a water tower right behind the Riddler and Gordon. He slowly reaches to his utility belt and grabs a small object and attaches it to the grappling gun. He yells to Gordon to look out, and he shoots the grappling gun at the water tower, and it explodes. A huge rush of water crashes down on the GCPD rooftop and knocks the Riddler down. Batman races to the Riddler to apprehend him. The Riddler blasts him with another shot of gas from the bottom of his cane. Batman tries to fight through it this time. Jim Gordon grabs his gun and tries to shoot the Riddler, but he can't get a clear shot without injuring Batman. The Riddler and Batman struggle, and they both fall off the side of a building. Catwoman swoops in to try to catch Batman and grabs him by the hand. Batman is holding the Riddler by his wrist. He keeps seeing flashes of Jack Napier and Ace Chemicals hanging by his hand. The Riddler tells him, 
this may be it for me, but there are more riddles to solve. With that, the Riddler pushes off of Batman and falls to his death. Batman again sees flashes the Joker falling to his death. Next, we see Batman and Catwoman and Batgirl in the Batcave. Batman turns to tell them that this isn't over, and he has to find this accomplice, this person that's creating this fear toxin. Batman collapses again. Selina rushes over to him. Alfred picks up the phone and makes a phone call. Master Dick, he needs you. Come home. We fade to black. This is the end of that movie. Kind of like The Godfather Part 1 and The Godfather Part 2. The second film, Batman, is hunting the Scarecrow funded by Hugo Strange in Arkham Asylum. That's kind of where I, that's where I went from. And I ran out of gas after that because I was like, I can't write it. <laughs> so have I. Goodness. And yeah. I was complaining about two villains. You had six villains? <laughs> yeah, but, I, but, but they're told in different time periods. They are. Oh, well, I, kind of, you know, I went off the rails. I'm sorry. I went way off the rails. <laughs> oh, and okay. so for, for Scarecrow, I envisioned Anthony Hopkins to kind of come, come off of Silence of the Lambs. They wanted him yeah. to be a scary guy again. And I thought, you know, making Jonathan Crane British again makes no difference. Cillian Murphy is British, even though he had an American accent in the movies of, mm-hmm. of Batman Begins. Anyway, right. next up. One, one quick thing, Michael. Who was your Batgirl again? Oh, my, my Batgirl. Well, I actually kind of liked Alicia Silverstone as Batgirl in Batman uh, and Robin. But uh, the person that I was leaning towards, and you might think I'm crazy, but you might not. <laughs> I was thinking of Tiffany Amber Thiessen. I would be on board for it. Because, like, you have the 90210 fans, because she was on 90210. Then you had the Saved by the Bell fans. And, like, oh, my God, Tiffany Amber Thiessen is Batgirl? Like, people would go crazy over that. That's a bombshell. I like That's- it. All right, Jeff, go for it, buddy. Okay, so mine uh, actually takes place in the same thing three years afterwards. I suppose, because we got, if we haven't done Nolan, we've got to use it at some point. So I came up with the title of Batman colon The Dark Knight. And the story has somehow turned into Oswald Cobblepot was somehow a pawn of Max Shrek. So Max Shrek becomes the bad guy, but it's just the way that the public is choosing to remember it is that somehow Max Shrek was the real bad guy and that Oswald Cobblepot was just a dupe and he really stood for like what the people actually wanted. And so because of that, three years later, the mayor of Gotham is still kind of struggling with his popularity He's very pro-Batman, but because of that whole Batman being against Oswald Cobblepot, that's kind of not going well for the mayor. And add to that, the DA, Harvey Dent, is really getting a lot of buzz because of his tough stance on crime. He's known as the Great Black Knight because he is Billy Dee Williams and, in fact, a black man. And he is being urged to run for mayor. And one of the people that kind of is talking to him about being the mayor is one of his close friends, Bruce Wayne. Harvey is kind of like a father figure to Bruce. He does decide he is going to run for mayor. Shortly after his announcement, a group of thugs burst in, hold everybody hostage with guns, etc., etc. Batman shows up and he starts fighting all the bad guys, but misses one. And one is just about to uh, kill either a woman or like an unarmed person and Harvey Dent jumps to take the bullet essentially but in so doing gets like half of his face just blown off and so he's gravely injured he goes through you know an intensive recovery but months later he is recovered and he comes out and he has all of a sudden an even tougher stance on crime so much to the fact that now he's anti-Batman and saying that Batman is just as bad as the villains and so 
uh, we need to get rid of this Batman as well. Sometime around that same time, uh, this mysterious new gang leader shows up and is taking over Gotham. And Batman uh, is investigating because all of these crimes seem to all be linked to this mysterious leader. But every time he almost is able to track him down and catch him, he, he would lose him again and again and again. So sometime around that exact same time, Bruce notices that Harvey... Uh, is becoming more distant, even in their personal relationship. He's becoming so single-minded that all he cares about is eradicating crime. He doesn't care about anything else. Uh, and so then Bruce ends up publicly calling him out. So everybody turns on Bruce Wayne. So now Bruce Wayne is kind of on the outs as well. So then he goes back to Wayne Manor. But in the meantime, Harvey Dent is kind of putting two and two together and realizing that Batman is opposing him and Bruce Wayne is opposing him. Clearly, this must be the same person. So he goes to Wayne Manor and confronts him and says, like, you've been searching for this this uh, gang leader, blah, 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 blah. You would never suspect that. And then he pulls away the side of his face to show that he is, in fact, Two-Face and that he's both the hero and uh, this gang leader villain. So then I would expect some sort of like epic battle at this point, but something like they did in Spider-Man, where it's not only is it Bruce fighting with Two-Face, but it's also Harvey fighting with the two sides of himself, because there is that legitimately good part of Harvey that is still trying to win out. And that ultimately I would see it coming down to some sort of a circumstance where Harvey ends up finding a coin and saying that that's all it comes down to is just random chance. So he ends up flipping the coin and the coin lands on the, the scarred side so that the evil side has won. The gang leader escapes, but then in so doing, Batman ends up being blamed not only for not catching this gang leader, but also for the disappearance or maybe even the death. I could see that. Like it, they feel like Batman somehow killed Harvey Dent because he was in opposition to him. So that Batman's blamed for all of that. And then kind of similar to the Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight is that he comes to this realization that like, that's the role that he needs to play, is that he needs to be that unsung hero that is hated by people but is doing what needs to be done. Very interesting. Okay. All right. So, I, I by the way, I could just see Burton reveling in that face-ripping scene. Like, that oh, yeah. would be his moment, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, not only that, but and again, the thing that makes the entire thing work is Billy D. Williams. Because you put yeah. Billy D. Williams with that much, like, uh, if you ask me, there is no person in Hollywood with more oozing charisma than Billy D. Williams. So to have Billy D. Williams play this role, like, oh, I just watch him sit in a chair and stare at me all day. Like, that would be fine, but <laughs> you yeah. give it more. Cool 45 commercials back in the day? Oh, oh. oh. <laughs> magical. They were magical. <laughs> Adam, what do you have? So again, let's let's talk about my alternate 1995 because in my scenario, I believe that Warner Brothers had a different way of dealing with the bad press of Batman Returns, and that was to announce the return of Superman to the big screen and a team up between the heroes. So in this case, they were going to be bringing back Christopher Reeve, and they had hoped to add some goodwill to the project. And he manages to reach out to Gene Hackman, who kind of wants to cleanse the stain of the quest for peace. So he comes back as well. Burton isn't super thrilled with the loss of creative control, 
but he wants to show the world that he can make a movie in the daylight that's still entertaining. So meanwhile, Michael Keaton is not super thrilled again that he's going to probably be overshadowed by this new co-star, you know, the return of Christopher Reeve. Is this this really a Batman movie? So he's upset about it. So he backs out, which causes Burton to reach out to his other star of Beetlejuice. That's right, Alec Baldwin as Bruce Wayne, Batman. Now, this means we would never get my beloved The Shadow movie in 1994, but that's a sacrifice that I'm willing to make to get Reeve as Superman one more time and a worthy team-up with this version. So, may I introduce to you Batman 3, World's Finest. So, the film opens with Batman taking out a gang of kidnappers that are holding a group of wealthy businessmen for ransom in the name of a lower-tier crime lord known as the Clock King. And after subduing the crooks, Commissioner Gordon tells Batman that the Clock King set up the situation just to get a crack at the Batman and be the one who took him out. So returning to the Batcave after the battle, Bruce Wayne sees a news report about tsunamis in Japan, earthquakes in Chile, and terrorist bombings in Europe. He sees a news article about Gotham's rise in crime with the headline, Batman's batting average is sinking, and wonders aloud to Alfred if he could really make a difference in the world fighting psychos with delusions of grandeur, or if he's just inspiring more challengers who think they can be the one to take out the bat. Bruce mentions that alien trio who took control of the White House a decade prior doubts he could have found a way to stop them like the other guy. He mentions Lex Luthor as an example of a human threat who could have done some real damage if there wasn't a flying guy there to stop him. And how Superman's absence from the news in the last year seems to coincide with Lex Luthor's release from prison on a technicality, with a court finding that Superman was not authorized by law to apprehend him. The back computer then notifies Bruce that a Wayne communications satellite has gone missing. Just as he sees a news report from the site of a meteor crash in Metropolis Bay that mysteriously disappeared, Alfred then alerts him to a report on the police scanner of a strange object landing in Gotham Harbor as well. So Bruce arrives at the harbor crash site in the morning after learning that the salvage company assigned to retrieve the object is owned by LexCorp. And he has a run-in with Luther, who is suspiciously overseeing the project personally. Wayne indicates that he believes the object to be his fallen satellite, which Luther denies, claiming it was just a test probe his company had sent up. Wayne then informs Luther that the damage to his property at the same time of the crash is too much of a coincidence and that he'll be seeking restitution. And after a nasty exchange between the two businessmen, Wayne is asked to leave by Commissioner Gordon to prevent a public incident. So Batman goes that night and investigates the LexCorp labs, finding that the meteor is in fact a large ice crystal encasing something inside and that it has a larger twin, which is slowly being thawed out. After burning a CD of Luther's files indicating his plans to destroy major agricultural and industrial centers in the USA to make the world reliant on his supply chain, Luther enters the room and Batman catches him, tries to intimidate him for answers about this plot, but barely survives a trio of security system booby traps set by Luther, who taunts him by saying, I've been hassled by a bigger guy in a brighter cape, and he's not around anymore. You might consider what I can do to someone as small as you before you try this again. So discouraged, Wayne returns to the Batcave and studies the final minutes video footage from his satellite security cameras, seeing what looks like 
distant figures battling in space that are then all of a sudden trapped in crystal casings after an alien weapon explodes, sending the two hurtling towards Earth. Bruce freezes the frame just before one of the ice crystal objects hits the satellite and sees a human face inside, surrounded by blue and red refracting light. Shocked, he begins working on his plan to free Superman, telling Alfred, I may not be enough to save the world, but at least I can give them their champion back. Meanwhile, Luther is finishing thawing out the other ice block, which awakens a large alien being known as Mongol, who I see played by David Warner in prosthetics. He's just so dramatic. Luther introduces himself as the man who delivered Superman to Mongol after intercepting a galaxy-wide message requesting the whereabouts of any surviving Kryptonians who he wished to slay for a slight against his people a century prior. So Luther then admits his disappointment that Mongol did not finish the job, but wishes to offer him another opportunity to get revenge by strategically destroying the adopted home of the last son of Krypton. Of course, we now know this will benefit Luther's own designs. So Luther then sees a news report of Bruce Wayne calling him out as a criminal, claiming to have information that will topple all his business holdings, allowing Wayne Enterprises to buy him out and make the company legitimate. Then Wayne challenges Luther to meet him on Lois Lane's talk show that night to save face. As a result, Luther does not free Mongol completely, which enrages the would-be conqueror. Luther promises to free him once he takes care of this nuisance, Bruce Wayne. Of course, Wayne does not show up for the debate on TV, leaving Luther to be grilled by Lois, who received a dossier of Lex's criminal activities from Wayne via courier. Instead, Batman heads back to LexCorp in an enhanced exoskeleton suit, knowing he's going to need a little extra muscle to carry the Man of Steel. So tracking the Kryptonian radiation, he finds the encased Superman and he melts the ice cocoon with a laser heating device and begins carrying out the mostly unconscious hero to the waiting Batwing jet on the roof. While dodging more security traps, the pair accidentally stumble into Mongol's holding chamber and spotting his mortal enemy. Mongol begins breaking the icy bonds himself and pursues them. Batman manages to dodge the alien a few times using his retracting battering line and help from the LexCorp security drones to identify Mongol as the greater threat. And after a few close calls, Superman starts to wake in a haze, and the two heroes begin levitating up to the roof, flying away in the Batwing just as an angry Lex is attempting to land his helicopter, which is intercepted by a bloodthirsty Mongol that has been wearied by the strain battling through the security drones. So he demands to know where the bat creature has taken the Kryptonian. Luther tells him, I don't know, but I have a good idea where he hangs up his tights. So Superman wakes up in Wayne Manor, being served breakfast in bed by Alfred. Surprising Alfred, he asks to see Bruce, as they have a lot to talk about. The two meet in Wayne's study, where Bruce doesn't seem too flustered that Superman knows his identity, stating, I guess I should have lead-lined my cowl. Bruce then drops his own bomb, stating, It's amazing what trouble a farm boy from Kansas can get himself into, don't you think? Superman looks concerned and causes Wayne to comment further, A pair of glasses? Really? Superman then reveals that he accepted Mongol's challenge to fight him in a distant galaxy in order to keep the Earth from becoming a battleground. But Luther tipped off Mongol, causing the villain to meet him within our own solar system. And as their battle brought them closer to Earth, he activated the weapon that trapped them both in hopes of preventing the loss of countless lives worldwide. Bruce is amazed that someone could have the power to make such a choice and begins commenting about a never-ending stream of crime and evil, feeling like his battle to save one person is pointless when someone like Superman can save millions. 
Superman then mentions how his father was not a superhuman on their planet, but a scientist. and tried to save them all from destruction, but in the end could only save his son, who has managed to do some good on his adopted home. Superman says, maybe the next person you save from a mugging will be a doctor who goes on to cure cancer. The next hostage will be the diplomat who negotiates a major peace treaty. Maybe saving one is enough. Superman then picks up a commotion in downtown Gotham with the super hearing. Mongols wreaking havoc, demanding that Superman face him. The two head to the roof of Wayne Manor to get a view of the damage being done. Bruce with binoculars, Superman with his telescopic vision. Knowing he's weakened, Bruce tries to talk him out of it, but Superman flies out to face Mongol, stating the Earth's sun will bring him back up to full power. Upon his arrival, Superman manages to save some crowds from harm, but is trapped in a black tar-like substance by Luther that sticks to him like a second skin and blocks out the sun's rays, reducing his power. Mongol pummels his Kryptonian rival as he unsuccessfully tries to remove the substance as Luther looks on laughing. Batman arrives in the Batmobile, but the vehicle is thrown into the sky by Mongol. Batman survives only by gliding back to the street on his cape's glider wings. Remembering that Mongol was able to be encased in ice, Batman asks for Superman's help in connecting a coolant hose from a refrigerated truck to a fire hydrant and freezing Mongol again. They then freeze the black sludge covering Superman and shatter it. This works, but his suit is stained black. Superman flies the frozen Mongol out into space, being carried in a street banner that he uses as a slingshot, twirling above the Earth and launching the alien bully beyond the moon. Meanwhile, Batman pursues Luther, who tries his sludge on the Cape Crusader, but the Dark Knight covers himself in his cape, which has a nonstick coating that repels the substance. As Batman rises triumphantly, we see Luther also throw a concussion grenade at him, and it seemingly blows the hero up just as Superman returns to the scene. In desperation, Luther pulls a kryptonite-laced chest plate out of a briefcase to keep Superman at bay, then detonates a bomb at a nearby bridge where a crowd is gathered to watch the action. Luther smirks, up, up, and away, hero. As Superman flies off to save the people in peril, knowing Superman can still hear him, the villain gloats, I'll always win. You couldn't stop me if you wanted to. Just then, a battered Batman grabs Luther's chest plate from behind and throws it away with another grenade attached, remarking, but I can just as it explodes. The chest plate destroyed, Batman binds Luther in a bat rope, hoists him up next to a gargoyle with the retractable line. A gaggle of news reporters swarms the heroes, try to get pictures and cell bites, but the heroes quickly ascend to the top of the building Luther suspended from, lowering him down to the waiting FBI agents below. Superman then asks Batman how he feels about working with a partner, to which he replies, it might be worth looking into. I think I'm good just trying to save one life at a time. With that, the heroes fly away and swing off towards the camera as credits roll. World's finest. There you go. Two questions. Was the black substance the black mercy? Uh, no, I, did, I didn't want to go that far because I, I didn't want to get all the psychological stuff. It was just literally like some thing that Luther developed in a lab because he knew Superman got his power from solar radiation. Because I thought that was a, really a deep pull. Like, wow, he went Black Mercy. Wow, that'd be crazy. <laughs> That's a story unto itself. Yeah, I don't want to get into that. <laughs> Your story made me think of something. If Hollywood had gone with Adam's idea, they may have prevented Christopher Reeve from having his getting paralyzed. Yeah, got, and I thought about par- that too. He got yeah. paralyzed in, in 1995. Mm-hmm. They would have been doing press tours for this movie. Exactly. <laughs> we could have had more, more time with him, yeah. <laughs> Alternate reality. But at the same time, he did a lot of good with his disability throughout I, the world. I have a friend that works for the charity still. Still to this yeah. day, she works for the charity. And, and now, because 
his wife passed away from cancer. That's the Christopher and Dana Reeve Foundation. It's for you know paralyzation as well as cancer research. So it's it's a pretty cool charity. But Jeremy, so there we had three possibilities for what could have happened if Burton had continued on. But now you're saying time has passed, right? Time has passed. He has grown. We've got the world as it is, like Earth One here. This is what we're dealing with. So we go to a cold open. Opening scene would be of an older woman stoking her fireplace. She pauses, then beckons for the shadowy figure in the shadows to approach and step out into the light. She remarks, I know that you've partially learned of your true heritage, but let me tell you how it came to be. This would be shot from behind the empty chair. She takes her seat in front of the fire, revealing the older woman is none other than Amanda Waller. And we don't see the man's face as he takes his place by the fire. Just an imposing figure in black, dark clothing. Waller begins a voiceover in a flashback, telling of how she, working at Cadmus, went from being Batman's biggest publicly covert antagonist to his biggest supporter and government liaison. How she came to understand Batman, and by way of various flashbacks, Bruce himself. She then describes how she realized over the years that Bruce was slowing down, not able to keep up with his own insane pace. She knew he'd eventually retire, or be retired. Gotham and the world need Batman. Thus she began Project Batman Beyond. Title screen. Following the story in the past, Amanda Waller begins telling this figure of her plan and how we came to learn of Terry himself, her plan to clone and give birth to the next Batman. Waller's failed attempts to kill the young Batman's parents, but the universe intervened anyway, killing his father and bringing Terry into contact with Bruce of the universe's own accord. Then we get a present day look at Terry's shocked face, angry at her for setting his own life's course before birth. Then we can go about telling essentially a young Batman's origin story again. And this would kick off however we want. I didn't have a specific villain that was iconic for this. It was more or less the setup, the premise, the introduction. And we'd bring back Keaton as old Bruce. Um, I am. Is it set in a futuristic world or is this just modern day? I would say you can make it like near future so you can give it some distance from present day but keep it in that kind of not quite our world kind of neo gotham that they had been doing just updated not full schumacher never go full schumacher (laughs) (laughs) and not blade runner no not quite but just keep it in in world like how the world would progress in that manner. Um, I am dropping you guys a photo here on Skype. These are the two young Batman that I was thinking of. It would be either the young Dylan O'Brien or Robbie Amell. Both of them would play a good young Batman that we can play off with the older mentor Batman and they're both at the right age where you can play them younger. Like you can give this five, six, seven years since they became the young Batman under Bruce's tutelage. And then you can also have them present day without having to do too much. Oh, we need to recast a younger one to play this for this scene 
that for that scene. No, just it's camera magic. We make it work. <laughs> now, let me ask this, because I watched Batman Beyond, but not into the, the later seasons. Was that actually what was revealed? Actually. Uh, or, or did you uh, add it, that? It was not in Batman Beyond. It was in Justice League Animated Series. Uh, Justice League Unlimited, I believe. Oh, yes, the okay. epilogue it, episode. Yeah, they used it as epilogue, as like a season finale or series finale. Yeah, that's cool. Tying together that animated universe. The moment you said the the Batman, I was like, he's doing the epilogue episode. <laughs> I was like, I knew it right away. I'm like, that's how much of a nerd I am. Like, I know every episode of that show. Oh god. Wait, <laughs> <laughs> I, I I I think that's yeah. It's interesting the idea of Batman basically having a son but not a son. You know that type of thing. So that that's an interesting element to it. Then how that could work. So. Okay. I, I always I always hated Damian Wayne. I don't like that character at all, but I do like the Terry McGinnis character a lot. Yeah, right. Batman Beyond was a cool show. Yeah. yeah. He was his own character. That's what was yeah. nice about him. He wasn't just some generic guy. Like he had his own struggles and development throughout the series. So and see we we've got Michael Keaton at the right age where he can still do some action, as we just saw in Spider Man Homecoming, and we can still use him for storytelling purposes get out there and save Terry initially just ease into it and this would be a smooth transition an actual handoff from Batman to Batman rather than just these random recastings that we've come to know Keaton even said he would play old Bruce Wayne he if they ever did a Batman Beyond he has said I would come back and play old Bruce Wayne that's cool my, my question is how does a modern day Tim Burton tell that story though well, let, let's let's get to our votes then. Yeah, let's, okay. let's talk about that. So, Michael, who do you vote for? Batman Beyond story is is one of my favorite that episode. But I, I have to, if I'm I'm trying to visualize myself as 1995 me, I would have killed to see a Batman Superman movie at that time. Mm. So I have to go with Adam on that one. So, woohoo, <laughs> Jeff. See, I'm the other way around. I mean, I am so jaded after seeing what they did with Batman <laughs> Superman that I don't want anything to do with it. So I would go. But at the same I, time... I didn't even have Martha in my pitch, Joe. Oh, <laughs> oh. That was the best part of the movie, man. How do you cut out? The most cinematic line in the history of cinema. Anyway, it's kind of tough to compare them all just because, yeah, they were so diverse and there was a lot to it. But ultimately, there was a lot to like in uh, in Michael. So where I'm going, I'm going there. Jeremy, uh, I kind of see where you were going with yours, Michael. But I don't, I don't know if Burton would go that route. Mm. That that was almost almost too much story for him. To it was almost with. too big. I, I yeah. thought that too when I was writing. I was like, this might be too big. Like this is big. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was big. I would have to lean Adam. Yeah, okay. I'm, I'm gonna have to lean Adam. <laughs> I, I'm, 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 I'm all the way. Right. I know. Yeah. Go for it, man. Uh, yeah. I mean, oh. I was gonna bring Nicolas Cage in at the end. Oh wow! Like bring in I, a, I, yeah. a future Superman. Oh okay. All right. Well, uh, for me. I honestly, like, with Jeremy's, I also love Batman Beyond, but I don't think, to Jeff's point, like he mentioned, I don't think Burton would be on board for launching a new series for somebody else to take over, because I don't think Burton wants to be tied down by something like that. 
Um, I, I just didn't see the angle for him to make it weird or quirky. And and like was mentioned with Michaels, there there were a lot of things going on there, but I just felt like that pitch maybe had a little bit too much of a modern sensibility. Like it felt like that's that would that would have fit in our Nolan pitch almost, mm-hmm. you know. Like Nolan would be on board for in all those characters. As much as I love the whole idea of like Selena trading up a new Batgirl and all that. Like I thought that was pretty neat. But Jeff's to me was so simple and left itself open for basically like here's Harvey dead and here's him going crazy. Here's that <clears throat> have it go. Excuse me. Got choked up and everything. It was <laughs> emotional. emotional here. No. <laughs> but the duality of it all felt to me something that he would be very much on board with. Just like was said, the duality with Batman and the Joker. He also mentioned the duality with the penguin in Batman Returns, that he was a son of a rich Gothamite who was discarded and lost his parents. Bruce Wayne just lost his parents in a different way. And now here you have his uh, partner in Justice, and now kind of the parallels there of that guy going down a darker path. So I had to go with Jeff, because I felt like Burton would definitely be on board for that. But unfortunately, it sounds like Superman is coming into the picture. Not unfortunately. Yay, hooray! Unfortunately, But Jeremy, you mentioned the Nicolas Cage thing. I would just say that originally I wanted to put Nicolas Cage in as Superman. And I was just going to say that basically he came out of that crystalline structure kind of malformed and different. (laughs) (laughs) And that's why he was Nicolas Cage. He's like, I feel different. Oh, you know, like so you'd just be kind of weird that way. But I was like, yeah, that, no, we don't we don't need him that badly. <laughs> uh, what did you guys think about the Alec Baldwin casting? Alec Baldwin as Bruce Wayne Batman at that time. Remember, Hunt for Red October, Alec Baldwin. Uh, what's the movie he did with, with Kim Basinger? Uh, oh, that's true. Hey, I didn't even think about that. Oh, there's that connection. When well, did they? Because they, they, ma- they were married. <laughs> They were together forever, yeah. They were yeah, married all the time. So she could have come oh, back as Mickey Vale just to be there. Was it Malice that they were in together? They did a couple of them together, I think. They did one, yeah, anyway. Um, yeah, I don't know, especially that era of Alec Baldwin, because that was the thing I thought about The Shadow, is that some of the, like, I don't know how well he p- played that duality. He's definitely, like, Captain Charisma to be Bruce Wayne, but the, the I don't the, think he's heroic enough mm, to be the Batman. You know, I mean well, that's, that's why I played more of the Bruce Wayne versus Lex Luthor dynamic because I thought he would have way more fun playing against Gene Hackman that way, and then you just have the obligatory action in the film, but he plays to his strengths being more Bruce Wayne than Batman necessarily. You, you know what I liked about the idea is. I'd like to see what Burton would do with Lex Luthor to make him less campy like he was in the Superman film, but make him more menacing. I think that that would be the real crux of the story is seeing what Burton could do with Lex Luthor. That would be really cool. I kind of have a feeling he would go the Kevin Spacey route to make him like dark and sinister, I guess. Mm hmm. Yeah, and I try to play that up a little bit more where he's just kind of like, yes, he's sort of up to his own tricks. But then by the end of it, he's like, hey, I could bring in this other alien that'll kill Superman for me. Like he's yeah. taking it that far now. You know, when, when you pulled Mongol out, I was like, oh, cool. I like Mongol. He's a good character. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. Although yeah, then so- doesn't 
doesn't this become almost the same plot line of Batman v Superman? I mean, instead <laughs> yeah, of this much. is Doomsday instead of. Uh... Well, it, it, it originally yes, my thought was oh Doomsday, no no Doomsday. <laughs> Thank you. Thank <laughs> Make you. it Mongol, another death of Superman character, and well, more... especially because Doomsday wasn't around yet, was he? Wasn't well, Doomsday he was. written in ninety six? Yeah. Yeah, well, 96. Death of Superman was like 92, I think, if I remember. No, right. so I, I would have been later. 12. No, it was definitely later than maybe. that. It wasn't that no, late. It was late because um, I was definitely in high school, and that would have put me 12 or 13, and it was uh, later than that. I pulled this up. Nope, 1992, Death of Superman. Two? Isn't that crazy? It was happening when Batman Returns was going on. Death of Superman huh. was happening. Ninety-two, ninety-three. So that's your Wikipedia. So, yeah. So how did how did you narrow it down to Alec Baldwin? Yeah, I, I probably would have if it was Keaton. I would have been all in. I like I love the story, but I don't know if Alec Baldwin at that time was Batman. Well, yeah. because Keaton what? stepped down because Burton stepped down. So if right. Burton's so, still around. We still have Keaton. Right. right. Unless you are intentionally going away from him. Well, no, it, it honestly, like, I, I wanted Keaton, too, because that would be iconic. I just felt like, again, for that reason, that he would kind of be like, oh, man. But maybe you're right, right. Maybe Burton could talk him into it and bring him around and be like, you know what? It's going to be it's still there's a strong story for you in here about your doubts. It's about you becoming the true hero in the end and being OK with your place as the more street level hero type thing so yeah, so they, maybe you're right we could just do keaton yeah or the original batman movie they were looking at alec baldwin this mm -hmm. one when they replaced him in batman forever they were actually looking at alec's brother billy oh they really yeah, oh my billy gosh. and ethan hawk were initially considered before, <laughs> before they i can handle ethan hawk Oh, yeah. Ethan Hawke's too young. I can't yeah, see that. He would have been young then, right? Yeah, way yeah. back then. That's well, crazy. if that's what they were going. I mean, Val Kilmer, well, was he young? He was young at that time, wasn't he? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. So maybe they wanted him playing younger. So huh. let's let's settle it. We got Keaton because we have Burton. Right. Yeah. So Keaton in this role, I can see this being a stronger play. And I'd also say you probably, oh, let's see, Christopher Reeve, he would have been what? age at that point well i mean you gotta think he wasn't that far off from the quest for peace i mean i think that was like 87 i want to say so i mean it, it wasn't that much i mean seven years later right and he yes was he was great movies, yes so. he was whatever but he we mentioned at least I, I mentioned that it was 10 years prior the events of superman 2 so you would expect him to be a more established superman. Even 43 years old yeah, right. Just too bad. So yeah, that would have been right in the wheelhouse. So yeah, mm -hmm. I can see Keaton and Christopher Reeve going head to head. I don't well, see Nicolas Cage. Except for the Unless one thing you is to though, make Nicolas Cage, your Lex Luthor. Well, I think Nicolas oh, Cage works gosh. in the weird story that. <laughs> when, That's gonna get crazy. Uh, like Nicholas Cage Keaton... worked for Burton's other concept, but not this right. one. Like, right. I think yeah. seeing Keaton and Christopher Reeve and Gene Hackman in a scene together would be awesome. Like it they're acting. Be. Oh the my one god! Thing, the 
The one thing, though, is that Michael, and that was the one of the digs on him as Batman, Michael Keaton is a relatively short guy, and Christopher Reeve is a relatively tall guy. And yeah, so he's going to be pretty... <laughs> bring you know, out the Apple work, box. Little Batman out, talking yeah. to... Bring out the Apple box. But that's the point. Superman's four. Wow, huge, he's tall. You know? Six four. Goodness. Superman's heroic. He's larger than life. So which is, I think and, which yeah. I thought was interesting that yeah that spin that you took on it where like, yeah Superman and that was the part two. If I was more of a Batman fan, I don't know that I would say Batman would ever say, "Well, I'm just going to sit to the little guys. You can handle all the big problems." That doesn't sound very Batmany to me. But I like the way that you played into it. I don't yeah I don't know how like authentic that feels. Well, I, I think it's just he, I mean, he has to realize that he doesn't have powers. He knows that. And that's why he's kind of like, well, I feel like I should be doing more because all I do is just nonstop fight the same battle over and over and over again when I could end something if I had powers. But that's mm. kind of he's learning that's maybe not not really the case and it's not really his place or something along those lines, you know, in Adam's defense, I'll, I'll give you this. This version of Batman, he is more of a street level hero than, mm. you know, what they did with, you know, Ben Affleck. They make him more of a world hero as opposed to what they do in the Burton movies. He's very street level. He handles street crime type of thing. You know, mm-hmm. I, I can understand that point of view, even though, yes, Batman, the idea yeah, the comics, him, he's Justice League. He's doing, you know, off yeah. planet stuff and whatever. Like if you ever so, read yeah. the book called Tower of Babel, it's a book about Batman. He's researched all right. the Justice League heroes and knows all their weaknesses. Oh, yeah. In order to use them against them if they ever go rogue. Like, yeah, that's, that's just Bat- not the movie Batman. Right. 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 Batman. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of that Illuminati thing that Marvel did. Yeah. 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 Well, the good news is for us, though, you know, we got the director all picked out. I mean, we we can get I think the casting is the strongest point of this. And like, I think, honestly, they would just stay on the same marketing track they were on. I mean, we'd get the action figures, we'd get the video games, but it would just be times two because now you have two iconic heroes. You know, and I think you would also bring again, just back a lot of people that maybe weren't 100% on board with Batman Returns, but this is, they're saying, oh, but I love Christopher Reeve, you know, we and we miss him, and right. we're sad it ended with yeah. four the way it did, so let's bring him back in uh-huh. a big budget production, you know. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing, too, that, that kind of the uh, other question for you, Adam, is just that, so, <clears throat> like, wh- wh- where's the Tim Burton in Tim Burton in this? Like, is it going to be as dark as Batman Returns? Or you think he's going to go, like, he's going to well, go I, more family-friendly? Like friendly? I said, I, I, I think, I don't, I don't know. If, I mean, I think it would be a studio mandate that he would not be able to make it as Burton-y, but I think they would give him some concessions. Mm-hmm. And I was imagining more, like, in the characterization of Mongol and the design of Mongol, stuff like that. Like, they would let him, okay, that's going to be your character. And you can make him as weird as you want to make him, and he'd probably have some scenes with Luther where they have some, you know, kind of quirky interactions. And that mm-hmm. would be more. And also, I felt like that scene with batman waking up being served breakfast and bread by alfred at wayne manor like that whole conversation i felt like burton would have a lot of fun with that side too because in all the interviews i've read and watched like he's like oh, i'm all about the psychology of superheroes and i i always huh. have to have an angle on them i want to understand what their struggle is what they're dealing with so that's where i felt like he would still have his influence but it would be a very 
different style of Burton film. And, but he would want to prove, you know, that, you know, I could still be me and be entertaining on a brighter, larger scale in a, you know, a different scenario. For example, big fish is a Burton movie. that's much brighter and, but it's a huge movie in the sense that it spans so much time and all the characters in it. I I get that point of view. Interesting. Um, now, the one thing that I will say that just popped into my head that would elevate this, not that it's not already going to be amazing, but would elevate it to the greatest superhero movie made of all time, is that we're talking about Tim Burton's Batman with Danny Elfman composing the music, meeting up with... Uh, John Williams. Williams and John oh. Williams. If you can get the two of them to work together, oh, yes. oh my mind billions. is already blown. I have no concept of what's going to happen. <laughs> that and would just be the great. Way, even yeah. just letting, because you know, and that's the thing too, is that, and as a movie fan who also loves movie scores, like getting into the mind of John Williams and how the way, I mean, you, you, you pick apart star Wars and how he has these different themes, you know, going, working apart and working into each other. And to just have one scene where you have the, dun, 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 like the, the Batman theme. And then you just hear like a dun, dun, dun like, Oh my gosh, that would have been that would be yeah, that very, would be. very film. Oh, yeah. Very, I love that. You, you think, <laughs> Oh my God, you'd get all the money because you get, it's like, <laughs> If you had the John Williams with the Danny Elfman, you'd get Star Wars fans to come in. They'd be like, "Oh my goodness!" Like, because one of the things, if you, I don't remember if you guys liked or didn't like Man of Steel, but I remember seeing that first trailer of Man of Steel, and you hadn't seen a Superman on big screen in so long, and you just you hear heard that like the kind of the rumblings of the of the um, John Williams theme, even though it was done by Hans Zimmer and a blend of it. And you see Superman flying for the first time in that trailer. I was like, "Oh my God!" Like they figured it out. Like he's flying, and that was well. That still was, got me. And that was even more so with what, what, which what what made Superman Returns even more painful is that those trailers were all John Williams music, and yeah. they they even got that voiceover from the cut scenes of Marlon Brando. Right. And then, <laughs> oh, 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 curse them, curse oh. them. But with that. Happy summer 1995, everybody. <laughs> Superman and Batman on the big screen for you. Some alternate reality, some other world. But thank you, Michael, again, for being here ah. with us, for giving the, us the idea for this, because I, I had a great time with this conversation. This is this so is fun. fun. Yeah, this is a lot of fun. I was, I was when you, well, first when you asked me to come back, I was like, yes, they like me. They really like me. <laughs> yeah, this is going to be good. So, Here's yeah. your sequel quest Oscar for best screenwriting. <laughs> so keep an eye out. This is a new year of sequel quest and we have a whole bunch more guests lined up uh, on the way for 2018. So stay tuned and ready for some fun. And until next time, dang, I picked a cute one. Ah. <laughs> That's not a great one. What? <laughs> yeah, I don't That's know. That's that's his last line of Batman Returns tries to shoot him and he uh, picks a cute umbrella that just has oh, like the a Danny DeVito line. Yes, <laughs> oh no, well. See, we need to include all of this, including Adam's explanation of why that's supposed to be funny. We could have uh, done like huh? same, same bat time, same bat channel or something like that. Yeah, that would have made sense.
enjoyed this episode of Sequel Quest and invite you to join us next week for another discussion about a film that never was. Share your ideas with the Sequel Quest universe by visiting SequelQuestPod.com, following us on Twitter at SQPod, on Facebook by searching Sequel Quest, or sending an email to SequelQuestPod at gmail.com. Let the world know how much you enjoy the show by leaving a review and five-star rating on iTunes. All films and characters discussed on Sequel Quest are the property of their respective studios and license holders. No copyright infringement is intended. 